Hello, everyone. A warm greetings and a welcome back to Inner Sections. We, some time back, had on this show my dear colleague at the Mentora Institute, Raghu Krishnamurthy. And we spoke between Raghu and I about some of the um, ideas and experiences that he was bringing about what was happening in the workplace when work and workers were actually coming home at the early stages of the COVID crisis. Now we're at a stage where we are realizing that this is not going away very soon. It's a state that we have to start to acclimate to and find a way to um, see it as environment in, in which we have to learn not just to survive, but find a way to thrive. And in the meanwhile, Raghu has been doing some really interesting work and research on this topic. And I thought this would be a timely moment for us to all come back and have that conversation again with Raghu as to what some of his key learnings have been on this theme of work, work from home and the future of work, the worker and the workplace. So a warm welcome to all of you. Raghu is a colleague of mine at Mentora. Before that, in his academic career, he has um, gotten an MBA from the Indian Institute of Management at Ahmedabad, the premier management institute in India. He is currently pursuing his uh, doctoral studies at UPenn. In addition to his work at Mentora, he has had a storied career in GE. 36 years of uh, experience as an HR professional, named as one of the top 50 Asian Americans in the world of business in 2009, was the CHRO of GE Health. Healthcare, GE Aviation, the Chief Talent Officer and Learning Officer of GE for many years. And then, of course, now we have the privilege of having him be part of our team here at Mentora. Raghu has been giving talks on his ideas about where management and culture and human potential in organizations is going at a number of very storied institutions. And more recently, as he's been doing this work on the future of work, he has been actively tapped by a number of think tanks and you know, expert bodies and media to you know, share some of the key findings and insights that he's gotten from them. Most recently, having the Academy of Business Research nominate his paper as the winning, the best paper in business very recently. So it is a great pleasure for me to have in our midst, Raghu Krishnamurthy. Raghu, thank you for joining us today. Warm welcome. Thank you, Hitendra, for a very, very warm welcome and introduction. Really appreciate being here. Raghu, what got you interested with all that's going on mm. to dedicate your energies in your doctoral research to this question of what is the on-the-ground reality and challenge and possibilities of work from home? No, in some ways, we are going through an unprecedented phenomena, right? Imagine if you are Rip Van Winkle of the modern era. Last year, around this time, you have gone to sleep and woken up. You will recognize the world that we are living in today. Of course, we have had a battering from the pandemic, and that's something that we need to factor into the account. But our Roads are empty. Our offices are empty. Our schools are empty. People are doubling down on work from home. So from that point of view, very clearly working from home had suddenly shifted. It used to be a benefit that could have been retracted anytime. And a few leaders did that. Uh, Marissa Meyer famously retracted this benefit in 2013, though it still continued to grow as a preference, especially among the younger generation in terms of at least working from home once or twice a week, uh, but it actually was a benefit. However, the pandemic made a huge shift. It became a business continuity contingency arrangement. So it was a response to the fact that uh, you had to change overnight to working from home. Uh, and then 
now people are starting to look at this as maybe a productivity initiative and it could be something that could be there for a long time or perhaps changes forever so you're now having a conversation whether this is a living future of work discussion as opposed to a coming future of work discussion so given this transition i was very intrigued by using this moment to study the phenomena and that's what i embarked on uh, ragu how did you do this study what is what is your data set so uh, it's a mixed method study and the study itself was about what are the factors influencing employees and managers in working from home during the transition because of covid-19 so that was the topic we had a quantitative side to it and we had about 580 responses from people across the world across age groups across industries across types of organizations startups to mature organizations once we had that data and analyzed it for its um, uh, salient insights we then had focus groups from among the participants to give us what what kind of uh, details can you go into because there's something new and we want to to not just look at the data but also understand one level deeper in terms of human stories that people attach to that data so we had focus groups where we asked people explain to us why you said that uh, managers experience more stress and anxiety during such and then we, what we did was we threw open the study to a group of senior hr managers and learning leaders saying that okay with this data how do you want to make decisions uh, for your organization so that was the journey we went through over a period of 3 months and i must say that um, it was an extremely interesting 3 months because even during this time uh, people started setting down we did the survey in april and at that time people were still negotiating their uh, equation with working from home as an organizational initiated uh, drive as opposed to benefit and now people have settled down and i think we are now in a different phase in the first phase what i found was organizations felt it was not as bad as they thought it would be but employees thought it was not as good an arrangement as they thought it would be but as we are now 4 4 5 in fact in some cases 6 months into the journey and if organizations are now wanting to go back to an office space people are saying no so we are still in some kind of a gridlock with many organizations still figuring out what is the new equation going forward so we are still very much in the conversation the study is not over we have an early glimpse of where what people's thinking are but i do believe that this is going to be a longitudinal study which is trying to see the evolution of people's framing of the issue over a period of time and i hope to do that over the next many months the key findings from the study were as follows first is actually most people felt that they were pretty effective in working from home so that's something that we need to keep in mind however if you look at the independent variables we looked at communication technology behavior and psychology communication was not a problem technology was not a problem in fact if you look at the work around future of work it's all, all around technology but technology is a hygiene factor if you have it it's great if you don't have it you have a problem where people at least in the beginning of this journey felt disoriented was the psychological side and that had to do with managing schedules isolation managing the fact that you now have children and you have to divide up the work between yourself and your spouse those were things that you were not ready for and that happened all of a sudden so people were navigating through that and found some difficulty the task yes. itself was not an issue now i think over a period of time people are experiencing a little more comfort because they have uh, worked out the kinks in their uh, their life uh, but we'll talk a little more about the whole work life 
piece of the whole equation. I think there's still some work to be done. What it tells you is people have actually settled down. And I think that's a good place to be. This page, if you put up in front of an organization, the challenge for them to think through is how am I going to get people back to office? There are some positives. You know, I see people like some people saying, enjoying some people saying flexibility yes. some people saying you know it's the same some people saying energized equilibrated yeah. then we're also seeing alone lonely you know uh longer distracted stir crazy uh mixed yeah. tiring you know lower yeah. so um so we do we do have some unresolved challenges here Raghu, uh, you mentioned that um you know as part of it you did these focus groups and you discovered something very you know interesting and insightful personal stories can yeah. you give an example of one or two of those stories that emerged that kind of like surprised you let me share with you suppose you are a mom with a couple of small kids and you're a manager with a globally distributed team this lady shared with me that she gets off the morning at 5 30 rolls off the bed and starts get on uh, getting on calls with asia in the morning europe in the afternoon or 10 o'clock and then evening she gets on uh, with the american workforce she has while she's doing that she also has to take care of kids who are now at home so there is snack time there is lunch time there is mom time required for those kids because they have no other outlet and managing the two and figuring out how to work that equation was really tough on her because she had to make some trade-offs between work and her children and i think a supportive organization culture a supportive boss helps her but the fact that she was finding it difficult to juggle with that, that was one. The second thing was a young, young man who was working in Bangalore. He was staying in a paying guest accommodation, which for some of you, if you don't know what it is, you hire a room in somebody's house and stay there. And you're originally from a village. And this person was saying that I don't have a desk. I don't have a chair. I'm sitting on my bed working from for 12 hours. I, the restaurants are closed outside. I have to depend on my landlord to get me a sandwich. And I'm, uh, this is Ramadan. So I'm, I'm a Muslim. So I'm fasting as well. And I can only connect with my parents at 1030 in the night. So he says, I am really struggling by, I, I'm not in a lock. Lock in, locked in kind of a situation. I feel I'm actually a captive. Yeah. And therefore, I don't know how to work myself way out of this captivity I'm facing. And the third story I would say is, you know, another person said, I actually feel the need to go out and hug somebody. Forget social distancing, forget physical distancing. I need that human connection. And we now know that the absence of human connection is as dangerous as smoking 15 cigarettes a day. There is medical evidence about isolation creating the same dynamic as a health hazard, which is smoking 15 cigarettes a day. So it's something really tangible for us to really think about as people navigate their way through a very difficult period when they're all known. So you not just have to look at the comments there, but there are different personas involved that we need to factor into account here. You know, Raghu, one of my responsibilities in this conversation is to take it from like the outer, you know, challenge more to the inner quest, you know. And so if I were to wear that hat and you give me that permission for a minute, I'm reminded, I'm reminded uh, of a story I was just hearing last week. It was this uh, annual like spiritual convocation of my, you know, spiritual teacher, Yogananda, that you, that you know, and his organization, Self-Presentation Fellowship. One of the stories that was shared there about the relationship he had with some of his near disciples, you know, very, very close disciples. Back in the 1920s, and 1930s, and 1940s, when he first came and set up this, uh, you know, yoga-based, you know, teaching and this organization was that sometimes he would deliberately actually physically, you know, distance himself from 
some of those, you know, close disciples who could otherwise have like unfettered access to him. And he was saying, you know, get attuned from within, go and deepen, you know, <laughs> go and deepen your meditations. Because of course, you know, in that case, it's a spiritual path and seek to have that connection, you know, with me and with, with the higher power, you know, from, from within. Of course, that is a fairly, you know, radical kind of, you know, quest relative to the work, you know, place that we're talking about where people were doing their own truth seeking and self-realization and going on that journey. But the one sort of parallel I want to draw with that is that there is research to say that shows that loneliness, you know, is is a disease, which you've just shared. Uh, there's also research to show that loneliness is more of an inner condition rather than an outer condition in that you could be, for example, you know, a Bollywood or Hollywood celebrity and you have tons of friends and fans, but you're actually feeling really lonely from within. And then there are others who may actually really thrive in solitude because somehow they've created a really deep connection from within to something that gives them a lot of soul enrichment. And um, while this is not the answer that we need right now in the world of business and in thinking about work-life balance and all of that and bringing back some physicality, some engagement, you know, which you've highlighted through that through that comment from that from that individual, which is a beautiful comment. I relate to it so much. This thing about missing missing hugging, you know, for example, I relate to it so much. At the same time, I think like maybe one of the things this pandemic has done is just invited all of us, you know, to you know when we are not getting things from the outer world, to 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 look within and see how rich are we from within, and what do we need to do to further enrich ourselves from within. What are the treasures we need to create from within so that over time we get more and more self-sustained, right? At least in some of the basic nurturing that we need, even while we seek to you know find a way to work ourselves out of this pandemic so anyway just 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 a thought and i think it's an important thought i think one of the things it tells us is we had for such a long time become dependent on external stimuli right and even if you're staying at home most of the stimuli you're getting is from the news and news is as much of a health hazard these days as uh, the pandemic because it riles you up. I think the the profound comment that you make is very important because I, I do believe as people start thinking about mental health and well-being, you're starting to see the fact that people are gravitating more towards the internal part of the equation, meditation, gratitude, and so on and so forth. I heard a comment from somebody the other day, a CEO saying that uh, I've been using Headspace for the last couple of years. Just don't tell anybody that. It tells you that... Um, Maybe like fitness was, um, say, 15, 20 years ago, uh, mental well-being is going to become part of mainstream going forward. And I hope it does. Yeah, very, very powerful. Raghu. What are you learning about work-life balance at a time like this, both from the vantage point of the individual and the organization on how it's playing out? So uh, let's talk about that. The big question that we need to think through is, are we working from home or are we living at work? That's the question. And from that point of view, I'm actually even wondering, one of the participants pointed out, maybe it's not work-life balance. Maybe we should think about this as a work-life conflict because we are not in balance. Another person said, no, 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 we may need to think about it differently yet again. Because when we were talking about work-life balance at work, it was about life intruding into work. I used to go to office and I had a I had to go and attend my daughter's uh, basketball game or a music concert and life used to intrude into work. Now you're at home, at work, and work is intruding into life. You've got children to take care of, you've got healthcare issues, you've got elderly parents to take care of, and therefore 
that conflict is inevitable. Some people know how to manage it, but it raises the question, how are people managing it? And the ostensible way people seem to be managing it, I need to take care of myself. Nutrition, exercise, sleep, gratitude, those are important. We are forgetting a very important part in this equation, and that's work. If you're taking care of your physical self and mental self, what you're saying is, I'm actually trying to attend to the balanced part of the, my, my life in my spare time. But you're still spending bulk of your time in work. If the work itself is not enriching, you're still going to have that imbalance. So I'm actually thinking about a new phrase. It's not work-life balance. Should we think about work-life enrichment? where work itself is a source of nourishment and, and enrichment. And we are discounting that. And I believe for me, that points to a few things. One is organizations look at work-life balance as a benefit issue. Let's outsource it to employee assistance program. Let's talk about childcare. Let's talk about you know time off or sick leave. That is one part of the equation. But if organizations say, okay, I am really not just going to tap my people for their skills, but for their potential and dreams, I'm going to create an organizational culture that allows people to grow, that allows the managers to be supportive of their employees and the co-workers to be supportive. Those are the three dimensions in my research. I found organization culture, manager and the co-worker. These three are key drivers of work enrichment. So that's when work moves from just a job to something that's more profound say a calling and when work is a calling you're able to take the positive energy from work and transfer it to life if work is not a calling then it becomes a drain so i believe work needs to be energizing and for that we need to think about purpose in the workplace love in the workplace growth in the workplace and self-realization in the workplace i do believe the energies that we talk about at mentora become a real muscle in re making sure that the work part is actually enriching as well. If you don't have that, you're not going to be able to find equilibrium despite of you meditating for eight hours. That's not going to happen. Yeah. So uh, I think I'm hearing from you the importance of changing the motivational levers of work, the engagement levers from purely extrinsic and outer more to intrinsic something that makes work just naturally and intrinsically and authentically you know inspiring for, for you know for each individual so that they can in their own personal space and way create a sense of fulfillment from it whether or not they're actually you know in a physical space with other people at work self-realization growth purpose love being all parameters that will help help them get there let's look at the results of the of the poll that we just did yeah. all the way from office eight percent now if if a if a leader is looking at this and takes a look at it it's going to change the dynamic and perspective of how they need to think about office first of all the good news it's not binary it's not either or it's both secondly siemens has done a phenomenal job and the ceo has said listen in future well, you decide where you want to work. You decide where you're going to be most productive. And productivity doesn't mean presence for me. And that shift is a very progressive shift organizations are making. And a lot of organizations are saying, that, okay, therefore, this is no more a contingency arrangement. This is a future of work reset. And in this reset, we're going to think about the work worker and the workplace very differently. And progressive organizations will say, okay, I'm going to empower employees 
to determine where they want to work, when they want to work, uh, and create the environment to do so. One of the things that strikes me about what you're just saying about the Siemens example is um, is that it speaks to a culture of higher level of trust between the manager and their team. You know, because you can no longer keep like a watchful eye over the employee as to physically what are they doing. <laughs> you know, I mean, you, you can never really keep a watchful eye over how they're feeling from within and what they're thinking from within. That was our own private space. But now even physically, what each of us is doing, you know, when we are waking up and when we are showing up for work and, you know, what level of energy we're bringing, et cetera, any or all of this is now less visible, you know, until we start putting webcams into people's offices or anything if they're working from home. Right. And uh, so it, it suggests to me that it's almost like the consciousness of the workplace has to evolve to a higher place where there is such a sense of intrinsic motivation, a strong bond, a deep commitment to the purpose that you can just take it on faith that people are doing the hardest work they can. I mean, the other part, which I think makes trust so central in this case, in the past, there was just this uh, very spoken or unspoken understanding that, look, you keep your home affairs at home and then you show up at work and then you, and then you're meant to work and every now and then there's a rare exception maybe you lose a loved one or somebody is seriously sick and of course you know in those cases we will give you those concessions but otherwise you're at work now we realize that every now and then you know a small child could be having you know a tantrum you know something or or could be having a little struggle with their own learn from home kind of routine or something and and how do you know you know what's genuine and what's not genuine and what's like addressable and not addressable etc you just have to take it on faith that each person on your team is doing the best they can to uh, to make that kind of balance happen i think it's a big realization just like when we now know we now know at least in the us there's, there's so much debate about children going back to school when the child comes to school you're not just talking about the brain coming to the school you're talking about the child coming in with the baggage of issues around nutrition issues around health issues around domestic violence and so on you're bringing the whole child to the school not just the brain in the same way, organizations need to realize that they're bringing the whole person, not just the skill, not just the hands. If they realize that, then, uh, you know, as uh, Mihai Sitsenmai talks about in flow, you are a soul to be uplifted, not just a skill to be optimized. Now, I know that's a little far-fetched for organizations to think about, but just take a look. If you, if you ask the question, my study reveals a couple of things. When you ask the employees, what training do they think they need to have? They talk about, we like to have training on work home, homework standards, work-life balance, time management. But when you ask the question, what training would they like their leaders to have? Trust, empathy, emotional intelligence come through as the top three, which tells you what they need from the organization, what they need from their leaders is a very supportive, nurturing, compassionate overture. Uh, yeah, no, thank you. I mean, uh, it's a very powerful, I think, lesson for those of us who are leaders, who are managers as to what our people are looking for from us. And while it's hard to figure out, like, how to really address that need and Raghu, I'd like you to take us there next. Like, what are you learning about how are managers being able to successfully execute a greater sense of connection, empathy, belonging, you know, for the employees at a time like that. So Raghu, back to you. What have you learned about how great managers and great cultures are adapting to the demands of today's employees. I'll share with you a story. I, I heard this from one of the focus group participants, and this person was on the autistic spectrum. He uh, shared with me the fact that he really struggled 
in terms of picking up cues when uh, we went to working from home, when their organization went to working from home. For nearly one or two weeks, he was interrupting people when he should not be interrupting. He was silent when he needed to speak because he was missing all the cues. Now, that's when I think uh, there is one interesting phrase he used that I think is very powerful. He said, my manager listened with her eyes and she called me up and said, what's wrong? Help me understand. You, you don't seem to be where you should be. And is there something I can do to help you? Now, he was so grateful for that conversation. He said, listen, I'm on the spectrum, though it doesn't, it's not very obvious. I'm really struggling to figure out the normal cues that I would get in under such circumstances. The lady then said, okay, I'll figure out a protocol. So over the next couple of days, next couple of meetings, she figured out a way saying that, okay, every time we're going to have a meeting and if you want to interrupt somebody, you need to hold a pink slip. Or if you say, if you have completed a thought, you should say Roger, just like you do in a walkie-talkie. Now, people found it strange in the beginning. She explained to them that one of the colleagues is finding it difficult to follow everybody. And therefore, she's instituting these rules to make sure that the person, that person is not left behind. Can you imagine the motivation this individual now feels about the fact that the group and the manager was particularly sensitive to the needs that he had? And I think that is one story I can talk about the fact and it extrapolated to the fact that the managers have a responsibility of listening with their eyes and providing emotional first aid when it's required. What we normally do as managers is emotions is not something we tackle. We delegate it to either a third party or to an HR person. However, in a trusting relationship with you have with your manager, only when you feel your manager's arms around you saying that I'm here for you, do you know and you feel the sense of balance. Because there are five, one of the things we found in our research is there are five relationships that have actually all been appended right now. Person, family, person, boss, person, subordinate, person, client. In one particular organization, they found that the salespeople actually had higher blood pressure over the last three, four months because they could not interact with the clients the way they used to. And finally, person, occupation. How are you? How is your career going to be affected? How, what does it mean in your salary? So all five of them have gone through a disruption. The one that makes the most, that fills the gap the most is person manager. And second is person family. Because family you feel is within your control. With the manager, it's not so. So if you, if your manager is sensitive, so how organizations train their managers to listen, to create trust, to be empathetic, to have the right amount of emotional intelligence in nurturing their teams in times like this virtually, coach virtually, those are some key competencies that are starting to emerge that you wouldn't have found in a normal face-to-face -face environment. Yeah. Raghu, did you hear anything about uh, any any solutions out there, any, any technologies uh, that are being used in very innovative ways? Or is this something that uh, really we cannot depend on or lean on or wait for like technological breakthroughs? We just kind of have to figure it out because for the most part, fundamentally, it's about, you know, these kinds of human to human connections and you can form them even just with a telephone. You know, actually, honestly, there is some, some really good thinking going around in technology, right? There is a neural. See, what people are finding is technologies to get the task done, not an issue. Test technologies to connect, collaborate, is a still more of an issue. So task virtuality, not an issue. Team virtuality, still an issue. 
So how do you collaborate virtually? How do you connect virtually is still evolving. So there are some new technologies that are starting to appear. Liberating structures is a, is one that I heard which really captures a way you can do a collaborative meeting very well. Mural is another one. I think there are three or four of these clear tools that are emerging. But more than that, what I am sensing is managers that actually spend time with their teams and say, how do we do this? What protocols do we need to establish? Both from check-in, how do I check in with you? Because initially some people said many of the check-in actually appeared as check-ups. People are checking up on me as opposed to checking in on me, which is not a trust equation, right? But if you then, just like this lady did with this autistic bar, how do I relate with you? How do I create that environment? That's a good way of not waiting for the technological solutions, but way, way, uh, allowing for the group itself to come out with appropriate vehicles through which they would collaborate together, nurture together, spend time together, the Friday evening Zoom parties or happy hours. They're all important vehicles to continue to create an environment that is positive and wholesome when everything else is negative and tough. Yeah, no, thank you for sharing that. Look, we need to switch away from time at work to looking at what are people providing, delivering, what actual value is being created? You know, maybe maybe this is more complex because many of these, like you're saying, you know, require collaboration, uh, Raghu, uh, they're team products, you know, that we need to build. Uh, there are a couple of technologies that I've um, been, you know, watching with interest even before coronavirus came. Uh, one of them, uh, you know, is this like little kind of mobile robot like thing, which has like a like an iPad, like, you know, kind of like face to it. And um, and you can remotely control it. And so like if you're, you know, sitting in your home, I'm sitting in my home and I have one of those and you have one of those and I want to reach out and connect with you, I could just kind of like uh, control this robot next to you so that it's facing you, you're facing it, you're seeing my face on it and I'm having a conversation with you. Or, or let's say you're in an office and I'm not in an office or uh, there are two people in that, in that room with you. I can turn that face towards the other person, look at, you know, so I'm controlling my physical experience of a remote space, you know, so that was one. The second I thought, which was quite a kind of interesting was when there were remote workplaces, you know, like two different offices, one in Miami, one in New York, and they needed to be more connected. So what they had done is created big, large screens, uh, you know, 24 by seven, like live, like webcams. I just placed them in the typical places where people bump into each other, like the corridors, like the, uh, you know, coffee machines, like literally even outside the restrooms, you know, as people are just walking in or coming out. And so, you know, as you kind of just go to the coffee machine on this big screen, you see that one of your colleagues in the other office has also gone to the coffee machine. And so you can have a conversation with them spontaneously, you know, right there, like you might otherwise in a physical office. As we think about the future of work, and we think about situations like we just saw here, where so many of us are saying like, we want to continue to work from home or at least part of the time to work from home. I wonder if technology might intrude a little bit into that, but in a way that makes some business sense, which is like, hey, please create an office for yourself at home and let's set some expectations as to a minimum core of time where all of us will be working at the same time, right? Yes, you have some commitments to your child and I have to my ailing parent or something, but you know, could we at least you know, agree that as a team, you know, at least the seven or eight of us 
that between, you know, whatever it is, 9 a.m. and 1 p.m., we'll all be there at work in our offices and we'll have the live cam on so that each of us can just kind of like just see, you know, with the other person and just every now and then talk to them as needed. I don't know. What do you think of that? Yeah, those boundary settings are very important. I think uh, what, what becomes very clear is as we go back, you got to keep in mind our entire work design is based on physical work. That's been so embedded into our consciousness over the last couple of hundred years, right? So, the, however, now we have to consciously transfer that into a work, virtual work design and virtual work experience. It calls for very different ways of figuring out how you connect with each other, right? Uh, to your point, some of it is technology driven, but some of it could be very simple ways of doing it. For instance, every time people get onto a call, like what we did, how are you feeling? Or one focus group manager said that he, she starts all her calls by saying that, can each of us share one moment of gratitude we felt over the last 24 hours? So these are some very simple, non-technical things that you can work with. Technology does help, but we need to not just think about technology, bringing in technology, but design the workflow to actually be comfortable by using the technology. I'll give you one example, right? If many of us go back to office space and some of us work from virtual space, we all know it's highly irritating when a bunch of leaders are sitting in a physical space and a few of us are in the virtual space because they are having their own laughter, they're making side remarks, you are not a party to that one. You actually feel as though it's not remote working, it's remote shirking. And some of the people on the physical side may actually think about you as remote shirking. However, if you say, all right, in the future, everybody, even though we all may be together, is going to be on the screen. That discounts the fact that you are not going to avoid people who are working virtually. So we have to consciously switch over to think about the, the virtual space as the primary space, not the physical space. So how progressive organizations are and how CEOs, the C-suite, and even the board is taking an interest in the shift is going to be very critical for going forward. So you've got designing virtual workspaces, designing virtual employee experience, and creating virtual intelligence competencies as three important parameters of the future of work. Yeah. You know, a theme that uh, is very close to the heart of uh, one of friends and, and uh, you know, colleagues, Feroz at SAP, who is leading uh, an engineering academy there. And one of the core qualities that he is seeking to help develop in those lead engineers, you know, at SAP is curiosity. This idea of just like always being on fire to not feel like you know or that you arrive and that you get it, but that, you know, you don't know and you don't yet have full, you know, thorough awareness of what the possibilities are. And so you're going to question, you're going to experiment, you're going to discover, you're going to listen, and who knows, you know, where that journey takes you. And I don't know, it seems to me, Raghu, that that ethic, you know, of like the wisdom energy in our work of opening yourself up to new possibilities, unshackling yourself from the habits of the past to be intentional about it, you know, sounds like a critical need for the day. Yeah, no, absolutely. I think uh, from my point of view, if you, if we did not, take this moment as a transformational opportunity, we would be missing the point. And I do believe that I love the phrase intentional interactions. Uh, it's never become more important. Uh, what we found in our research is an employee is the sum total of his contribution. Only part of those contributions are related to tasks. Much of the contributions are related to good organizational citizenship. It's no different in society, right? We're now realizing that as citizens of society, we have more than 
our family to take care of. And therefore, those connections as organizational citizens have to be really strong for us to also find meaning and wisdom. So to your point, a human being experiences growth only when the context is also powerful and compelling. And unless you give, you are in a position to share and expand. You are not going to get much from the from the outer world or from the context. So a lot you have to do it. Everybody has to do it. And that's when organizations, institutions find purpose, meaning and relevance in society. Yeah. Raghu, is there any like story or comment that uh, also stood out, you know, from your interviews that we haven't shared yet that would be worth sharing? Yeah, I, I think there, there are a couple of surprises in my start. One was managers were facing more stress than employees, partly because of the fact that they were sandwiched between showing compassionate, compassion to the employees and empathy to employees and still meeting the KPIs. So uh, I think organizations would be well served to rethink some of their processes goal setting, performance management, uh, KPI, uh, I think they need to be rethought um, and simplified in, in this environment. The second thing we found was that younger workers wanted to come back to office more than older workers. Likewise, startups, workers in startups wanted to come back to office space more than workers in mature organizations. And the point behind that when we explored was younger workers haven't yet got the relationships and therefore have a stronger affinity distance. They are not operationally distant. They are not technologically distant. But the fact that they don't have the relationship means that there is sizable affinity distance that they want to bridge by coming back to work. The second thing is on startups. We found the startups, unfortunately, their processes are not yet robust. So the shared understanding of the context, the codes that we all learn over a period of time, are not there. So for them, it actually creates a lot of confusion if they are not putting their mind in terms of evolving their, their processes. So people in startups also find it difficult in terms of working from home. I'm sure it will evolve over a period of time, but those are some unique elements of my research that I found that I thought I should share with you. Yeah, very nice. At the end of the day, what comes through for me is work life, working from home does help on self-interest, but working from the office or in a shared space, not necessarily from the office, helps in common interest. So people want both to take care of the self-interest, but also want to address the common interest. And common interest is what's our meaningful purpose? How can we grow together? And the energies that we can derive from one another through compassion and love and empathy. Those are very powerful human motivators. So I think this discussion of future of work is less about technology and more about humanity. Yeah. And about how we evolve, you know, humanity, how we evolve our mindsets, our intentions, our interactions in a world that at least for now has become increasingly virtual and, and digital, right? That if you, you know, in the, in the old world, they would call it the man machine interface. You know, how do we, so this is more like the man machine man, you know, all, all, all like, you know, woman machine woman, right? Like that interface, there's a human being on both sides of it. One practice that I found quite uh, inspiring from 
uh, a leader that uh, we work with. Uh, Raghu, you've been part of that, you know, uh, engagement as well uh, over the last year. So this is the president of this organization. And one thing that, you know, I've felt so inspired, you know, in their way of like, you know, their Zoom protocol is that, you know, this person is not always around in several of these, you know, meetings that are happening, you know, among the top leaders as they're, you know, kind of like working through transformation and reorganization, what have you. But when they are there, they always start the meeting by looking at each of the individuals, you know, present. So there might be between 10 and 15, sometimes even 20. And they will, in with such joy in their heart, you know, and such affection, they will look at the, you know, Zoom uh, little kind of thumbprint video, right, of that individual and the next individual and the next individual. And as they have that warmth and that smile on their face, and as they're looking at those thumbprints, they're saying that, I am looking at each of you. I'm looking at you now. And I'm looking at you. And it's their way of just saying, like, you know, I'm I'm connected. I'm connected to each of you. And it's giving me a great joy to do that right now with the blessing of being able to actually even see you right on the other side. And so they just don't get into the meeting. You know, they, they literally take like a couple of minutes just to build that human spirit there, which I thought was beautiful. Yeah, I think there is one one lesson, important lesson on this. Attention gives energy, not just time. So that's why when somebody calls you and says, how are you doing? Can I And, and show, showers that attention, you're able to carry that into other aspects of your life. So energy becomes very positive. And I think what your uh, example shows is demonstrating that attention charges people, energizes people, and it's an important leadership tool to have. Yeah, it's beautiful. Another thought uh, on, on that front I had about, you know, just this, if you think about the way connection is built, you know, in, in the workplace, part of it is through the collaboration on the projects itself and the stimulation and reward that we are getting from doing good work together. And that's obviously very important. But then also there are these more informal, like fun little, like, you know, bids for connection that one person makes about like, you know, did you watch the game last night or or like, you know, I mean, what, what an amazing day it is here today in, you know, in, in New York or what have you. And and, uh, and how the other person then responds to that bit. And then from there, it opens up a little bit more and a little bit more. And before you know it, they spend about five minutes just nurturing the human spirit and creating that bond with nothing that has to do with work at all. And um, we may run the risk of losing that, you know, in these more formal kind of Zoom or Microsoft team kind of like meeting appointments that we have with each other. So one thing I found very valuable is to check in with yourself about, you know, who are some people on your team that you haven't had that kind of a, you know, human touch with recently. And then see if you can, if you can find a few minutes, you know, just to, just to call them and check in as to whether they have availability or time, or if not, you know, when in the day they might have time. And then just say like, I, you know, I didn't really have an agenda. I just wanted to just like say, hi, how are you doing? You know, throw out a topic that just could be like an indication to that person that you really are not like here to like talk about like where are your deliverables? You're, you're just here to have a little bit of, you know, just joyful, fun exchange with them, right? It's so rewarding when we can do that on, on some kind of periodic basis, maybe with intentionality because it's just not happening spontaneously. I don't know what you think of that. Robert. It is so true. Uh, I can tell you personally that uh, a recent introduction I'm so grateful for a young lady reached out to me and my wife. She's a colleague of mine, also going through the doctoral program, saying that, hey, I know that you're over 60. I know that we're all under lock-in. I know you may find it difficult to go outside and buy groceries. Me and my boyfriend are here. Anytime you need anything, please ask us. We will be very happy to help you fetch your groceries, fetch your medicines, whatever be the case. And that 
one small email has stood with me over the last four months as a symbol of this person, her reaching out to me uh, and wanting to help. We have not had the opportunity of taking her help, but just that human overture actually, you know, has cooled my heart, so to speak. And I believe that if you all can do that once a day or once a week, even, I think the world is going to be much better, not let alone your workplace. And I do believe that when managers show that kind of respect to the human person on the other side, and you can even see that in the presidential elections, that uh, the human part of it, it is, at least in the democratic convention, is trying to, people are trying to show the human side of Biden. I'm not a political person, I'm just commenting on what I see there, but it is a very important time for us to put that in full display. Yeah, Raghu, you know, we're coming close to the end, you know, of our, of our time here together. So uh, I think what has emerged for me as the most important part of the story that we've unfolded here is that uh, we need to be conscious. We need to have this intentionality so that we are not just um, blindly adhering to certain traditions and norms, you know, of our culture, our workplace, or how we have sort of like done things until now. But we, each of us, take responsibility as being co-creators of a new world where who knows who is going to have what kind of breakthrough in terms of a ritual, a behavior, a way of engaging that ends up becoming then, you know, proliferated across the system in our community, in our organization, in our family, and, you know, amongst our circle of friends. Because we we just we have to discover the future the future we cannot just sort of like assume that it'll just like come here on its own or in some top-down way right so as each of us is going through that discovery and learning and experimentation any final thoughts or words from you ragu to advise and guide each of us as to one or two actions that we can take on in the next few days to um, accelerate and deepen that discovery. Times like this are great conversion periods. This is when we know what our uh, gaps are. And for me, I would say three things, empathetic listening, giving emotional first aid and forging connections on the personal side finding purpose at work, finding, giving love and compassion at work, and finding growth at work on the work side. In some ways, what we are talking about is, can we use this as an opportunity to grow as human beings? not just as workers. Yeah, that's beautiful. Thank you so much. Uh, thank you so much for that, Raghu. It's been a real joy yet again to have you with us here. And I look forward to um, obviously, um, you know, staying myself in touch with what you're doing, but also having us have another opportunity in the imminent future to bring you back when you have further findings and insights, you know, from, from this work that you've done as well. Uh, so thank you so much for joining us for this. Uh, very, very grateful. Thank you. Thank you for the opportunity. <laughs>